guys. It's me, Diana. I have to confess something. I have an interview with Brie Webb, and Brie Webb is an activist, and she's also Michael Brown of Ferguson's cousin. And her entire life was changed uh, six years ago when he died, and her whole family's life has been changed. And the reason that I've been too ashamed to publish it or even listen to it really is that when I got on the phone with Bree, because it there was so much shuffling around and it was hard to get an interview and it was it's very hard for me to get interview times when the baby is asleep. She's literally asleep on my chest right now, so you might hear her wake up. Um I don't have a lot of time to put into this and it takes a lot of time to edit. I'm not trying to make excuses, but I didn't do my research on Brie and I didn't know who she was. So when I got on the phone with her, I was like, Hey girl. I mean, it's just, it's mortifying when you hear my voice. I'm like, Hey girl, what's your story? You know? And then she was so gracious with me and she was like, I'm Brie Webb. I'm Michael Brown's cousin. And my whole life was, you know, a bomb was dropped on our family. And I'm like, honestly, you guys, I'm like, who the fuck is Michael Brown? I know I know the name, but which one was that? That was literally what I thought. And so while she's talking, I'm scrolling over on my phone, typing in who's Michael Brown, and it comes up Ferguson, and I immediately have tears running down my face, and I know it's a big deal. I know Ferguson was a big deal, but I really don't know the whole story, and I just felt so shameful for like our conversation went on for like an hour and I, it's probably one of the worst interviews I've ever given because I didn't even know, know what to ask her. I was so intimidated. I was frightened. I was embarrassed and I felt ashamed because honestly, if the, you know, this, this boy, Michael Brown was like six, four, he was huge, not quite as big as my boy, but if big boys like my son Cooper, who is 350 pounds, six foot nine, huge, massive, pale-faced, beautiful, red-headed boy. If those were the boys that kept having run-ins with police officers that went wrong, I would have been way more involved before I was 48 years old. And so definitely taken my time and kind of grappled with, you know, I asked Bree, hey, can I have another interview? And of course she was like, yeah, for sure. And I do want to interview her again now that I have read up on what happened in Ferguson and um, what happened between this police officer and my and her cousin, Michael Brown. Um, and I think what I came away with after reading everything is that, boy, why, why don't we have full time, full shift body cams on police officers? Because that would take the he said, she said right out of a lot of these issues. You know, um, and I just, it, it brings up a lot of questions for me about, you know, why so many of these things go wrong for people. And, um, anyway, so this is my interview with Brie. I honestly, I just wanted to trash it, erase it, pretend the audio didn't work and never put it up. But what I realized was I'm just a human <laughs> who can't know everything and who needs to learn. And that's the whole point of this podcast is that it's like my education. And I hope it's some helping some other people out there who are listening as well. Um, and that in my vulnerability, uh, it's my opportunity to learn because I don't know that I ever would have gone and really done a lot of research on um, what was going on. And you know why I wouldn't have done the research about what has been going on with black and brown people in this country? I wouldn't have done it 
because the police force is working for me and I'm not being harassed. I live behind the police station. I get waved at every day. My little girl loves to see the police officers go by. My little three-year-old who jumps on the trampoline. She loves to see the police cars go by. When she hears the siren, she gets excited. We have no fear of the police. We've had a great relationship with the police. Um, I've loved this country. I love our flag. I don't see racism when I look at our flag, but other people do. And what I'm realizing is just because it's working for me and it works for my family doesn't mean it's working for other people. And it's evident by the 40 plus conversations I've had in just the last eight weeks that this country isn't working for everyone. And so, um, you'll hear me make a total asshole out of myself in this podcast because I don't know what I'm talking about, but I think that's the point. That's the point of the whole conversation is here's this beautiful woman who's dedicated the last six years of her life to protesting because her cousin, uh, is no, you know, lost his life. And, um, I can at least take the time to, make it right, listen to what she has to say, and um, know more than I do. Gosh, I have so much shame wrapped up in this whole thing. (laughs) But here goes. Brie Webb, thanks for listening. Um, so I have been labeled because I don't like to always say it because I feel like I haven't lived up to those type of titles yet. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've been labeled as an activist. Um, I am a protester. Um, I'm also a founder of a studio called John Tier Dope Studios. Um, and yeah, I've honestly been protesting for about six years. Mm-hmm. Um, it started out in August 9th, 2014 for Michael Brown, okay. um, which is a relative of mine. Mm-hmm. Um, and it honestly went from there. August changed my life. It kind of reshifted every idea I ever had or thought or goal that I was going to accomplish. And mm-hmm. it made it more of now I have to be more about the people. So for six Mm -hmm. years strong, I've been protesting. I've been getting out, going to different um, functions to try to get people more aware of we can come at this corrupt government in order to sustain the rights that we need in order to be a better community. Mm Okay, well, tell me. So tell me about the studio that you started. Tell me what it's called and can you spell it for me? Yes, so it's spelled J-O-U-N-T-R-E and dope, like D-O-P-E, studios. Now, I will give you the uh, meaning behind dope because dope is such a broad word. Mm-hmm. Um, but I use it because we're, any individual is always having to go through the negative connotation that they get, that they get before someone says, oh, you're a great person. And that, it's always a negative look. So... I flipped it. Um, instead of saying dope, it means determined, opportunist, powerful educators. Mm. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, I feel like anybody can relate because in your own way, you're a dope individual. No matter what you do, at some point in your life, you feel like you're dope. 
Like you feel like you have all the abilities and qualities you need in order to be who you want to be. I love that. Say it one more time. Determined. Determined, opportunist, powerful educators. Love it. Thank you. Thank you. That's awesome. Okay. So tell me what, tell me about Michael Brown and what happened to you guys six years ago and how you feel about it. Um, well, six years ago, like I said, um, I was staying in Canfield Apartments. And a month before I moved in, um, Michael Brown shook the world. It changed. Mm-hmm. My cousin changed everything. Um, it was an eye-opener. I've never been in a protest, and I had never done things on that scale until August 9th, 2014. That kind of shook the nation. It kind of became the foundation of the people are standing up. The people are now letting their voices be heard. The people are doing what they need to do in order to get what they need to get without being afraid anymore. Because mm-hmm. honestly, the government is a scary system. The way they twist, the way they turn things, the way the, the, way the media portrays things. Mm-hmm. So it's like to have people that legit want a change stand up and say enough is enough. Mm-hmm. Like the whole world got behind that. And Mm -hmm. there were times where we had to go through the worst of the worst. I mean, I've been here with rubber bullets. I've been tear gas. I've been mustard gas. And mustard gas is only supposed to be used in world Mm -hmm. wars. It's not supposed to be used on um, civilians. So it's like to experience these triple threats and these high rated things that they do, it's so emotional. Like it really makes me feel like I can't depend on humans and I can't depend on the government because the same people that wear mm. these clothings and say that they stand and they help you are the same people that turn against you and beat you down, belittle you, suppress you and make you feel like you're nothing at all. Mm. And it's like, ever since then, I just continue to keep going strong and try to get my voice heard. I go to different protests and that's how I met you, you know, um, you heard me speaking yeah. and it's like I try to touch people on a personal level because I've personally been through this. I've personally had stands off with military, with the SWAT, with people that you wouldn't think you would ever have to go face on face with to say, you're not going to destroy me. So it's like when I speak or when I tell people about protests, I try to give them as real as it gets. I try to give them the real deal because I don't want you to go out there thinking and protesting is just about marching and saying chants. No, it's more than that. When you are a speaker you or when you start stepping up, you become a moving target. And all my life, I've been a moving target, of course, because of the color of my skin. But on top of that, I escalated it by stepping up and believing in my community and speaking out and telling my truth. Too. You know? Because I think you have a double target on your back because you're a woman yes. and because you're black. Definitely. Because, you know, women with a voice, it doesn't always go yes. over that well, you know? <laughs> what do you think was, the like, one of the most moving speeches you've ever made that affected people? Mm, I would have to say probably Juneteenth. Um, I gave... I gave a speech in um, Los Angeles across from City Hall. And I I just moved here about two weeks ago. 
I will know three weeks ago now. Mm-hmm. And that was a lot of people's first time seeing me because the way I do my speeches is I kind of mingle with people first before they even know who I am. I get out, I talk to people. I try to understand why are you here? Why do you want to protest? Why do you want to support black people? So it's like once I speak, mm-hmm. people even feel me even more. And when I gave mm-hmm. my speech, it's nothing that I wrote down. Everything that I speak is naturally thought of right in that moment. Yeah, because you've been living this. Your whole life was exactly. changed six years ago. So when I gave that speech, mm-hmm. I basically just got people to understand that unity is what matters. Because in the end, it's not going to be about color. It's going to be about people versus the government. So you right now, it's about the color mm-hmm. because that's what they want to divide us to make us not be able to overpower them. Because they know as unified as we can be, if we do that amongst all nations and amongst all races, they will be defeated. The government will be at its knees. Mm-hmm. So that night on Juneteenth, I spoke about that, but I also spoke to people about understanding that you can die by protesting you can die for doing the right thing you can die at any moment you never know what your enemy is set to do you never know what they're planning to do so you always have to be two ups before them because at any moment they can attack Mm -hmm. and will you be ready for that and a Mm -hmm. lot of people understood but they also were yeah a little afraid and I that's why I have to tap in and say and like I said, Juneteenth, do not be afraid for what you're standing for, which is something right. What you should be afraid of is the things that you stand for that is wrong because those come with consequences. Standing for something right comes with everything positive that you can think of. It just comes in a matter of time. How do you feel after you give a speech like that? Honestly... I always feel inspired by people because after speeches, I look out into Mm -hmm. the crowd and I can see a lot of people cry from hearing what I've been through. A lot of people, um, they say I changed their life. And in my mind, it's like me, little old me, like how could I have changed your life just by speaking? Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. you don't know what your words do to other people. You don't know what your experience does for other people. You don't know what mm-hmm. you've been through that could inspire them to get out of their situation or to even better their situation. So it's like to see those faces and to see those emotions, those raw, real emotions, it makes me want to cry. But I try not to cry because I try to be strong in my mind to know that this is positivity. This is what you wanted. You wanted people to hear you. You wanted people to see you in the raw flesh, but you wanted them to understand that this is who you are and they should feel accepted no matter who they are. Or what they believe in. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about how things changed for your family? Like what has been the wake of this bomb that has been dropped in the middle of your family's lives over the last six years? Um, I would say it changed just to the point where we became more aware of what we wanted to do with our lives. Um, a lot of us are now mm-hmm. running for different seats. Um, in the houses, in the Senate houses, and in the little judicial offices and the little branches that people don't worry about because they feel like the presidential election is what matters the most. So by doing that, that gives way to opportunities for everyone. 
by having us who went through a traumatic experience still be able to get up and say, okay, you know what, I'm going to help change the community by running for a seat or by trying to become an elected official or by trying to give more to the community. So we went through our emotional struggles. We have. We've had our hash outs. We went to the point we haven't talked to each other. But in the end, we all have went out and did our individual thing to contribute still to our community, which is the same community that's been holding mm -hmm. us down for these six years. How do you feel like you guys have been held down? Support-wise, um, anything that we've needed from our community as far as if it's protesting or just coming out and hearing us speak, hearing me speak, people come out and hear me speak and that's motivation. That's something that I need. That's that support that I need because even if you've never heard me speak, you won't just come out if you if it's something that's not intriguing or it's something that's not you're not interested in. If you haven't heard a word of mouth, mm -hmm. you're not gonna just be like, Oh yeah, I'm gonna come hear that person. Like it's it has to be something that you can relate mm -hmm. to. So with that, it's like I try to be relatable and my family does the same thing. They try to be relatable. They try to become more down to earth and let you know that we're going through the same struggles. But we can all mm -hmm. overcome these struggles. Have you seen that makes you happy? I have. I have. I've seen a few. Mm -hmm. um, like I said, the main one is um, seeing people of color now in those offices. Um, seeing more people try to support more um, businesses in their own communities instead of branching out and going to support these other communities or not even just other communities, these, these other businesses that don't care about putting back into the community, into a whole. So to see those things, it's like, okay, we're stepping up slowly, but surely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So do you, I mean... I know we just met briefly. Do you remember that yeah, I was a white lady? I do. <laughs> mm -hmm. And you saw my video. Um, what, if anything, like what advice would you give to like a middle-aged white family? Like how could we help? How could we be the most service? Educate your children if you still have children that are around. Um, mm -hmm. Also educate yourselves because self-education is the best education. Anybody can tell you something out of a book. But to read it yourself and to understand it and to take the notes in order to remember and take that collectively is the best thing that you can do. Also, exposing your children to protests or different good peaceful events will help them to see that, you know, mm -hmm. not everyone is like how you look on TV because what they display on TV is protesters and looters running rapidly or destroying things. And that's not what it's about. Like, we have a message, we mm -hmm. have a clear set goal, but we need more people to expose themselves to it and educate themselves on it, so that way it won't seem like we're trying to come at you strong force. We're just tired of having to go through our history and prove that we all have the right to live here equally. Have you no. ever been married? So I was married this I'm I'm married my second time and my first marriage was not successful and it went on 17 years and it wasn't it was unsuccessful pretty much 16 years it was really a struggle 
but we, we went to marriage counselors because we had children and we wanted to do better. And one of the things that the marriage counselor, one of the things that changed my life, and it's a tool that I've taken away and I've always used because I've run several businesses where I've had staffs and I have five kids that live at home and to make peace when there is an upset or a trauma or a problem, the first step that the therapist told my husband and I that we had to do was the first thing is, is you've got to acknowledge it. Mm -hmm. You can't pretend it's not happening because it just re-traumatizes you when you have to sit there and bang your head against a, against a wall and say, no, you did do this. No, you did do this. And the other person needs to say, you're right. I did it. Mm -hmm. I see how that hurt you. I acknowledge that pain. And that's the first step. And then the second step is building trust that it won't happen again. And that's how you get past the trauma, which this is very, this is simplifying it a lot. But I always think about how hard it would be if I were a black woman or a black man, black family to see the traumas that continue to go on and the way that um, our leadership continues to talk about it, like in some ways, like it didn't happen. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, like black people shouldn't be hurt you know, that, that it happened and that it continues to happen. And I think our first step is we have to read books. We have to watch Selma. We have to, you know, see the 13th and learn about the 13th amendment and, and watch all these. And by the way, I'll just give Netflix a plug because I think they're spoon feeding yes, it to people. Are. So yes, yeah, so much good stuff to watch right now. Listen to podcasts, just like really you got to plug in to why, like how, how did we hurt? How, how are black people hurt? And I think one thing that white people, I think do, and this has happened in my own family. I've seen people in my own family take the stance where it's like, well, I didn't do that. That was my ancestor. It doesn't matter. And clear, <laughs> clearly I never owned a slave, but I can empathize with the fact that slavery happened a very short time ago and Jim Crow happened a very short mm -hmm. time ago. And in my mother's lifetime, there was, you know, segregated schooling exactly. and so for it to be such a short time ago the ramifications of that are still playing out in our society and if we can't admit that that's going on then we can't protect ourselves from racism exactly and that's the first thing this is the education piece and i love that you said that exactly because i mean it starts in the homes and it actually really doesn't even start there it starts with education these schools these uh -huh. schools have brainwashed uh -huh. people to believe that Oh my god. Black culture doesn't exist. And it's uh -huh. all built upon like white supremacy and dictatorship and the democracy of the government. And it's like it's not that. It should be about right. ethnic cultures, different cultures. Yes. Let people learn what their families sometimes shield them from learning. Because uh -huh. a lot of you have a lot of black people. They may be foster kids and they may get raised with a white family, but they will never experience their black culture or learn about it. If, of course, they can't get it at home because their parents can't teach them that because they know nothing of it. Right. But if you're able to mm -hmm. receive it in school, at least you're attaining it some way. So that way, when you get older, you can pick that back up. But it goes in reverse. People that are raised by other races, they have to learn about it once they get older because they get shielded from it as they're younger. And it's like, mm -hmm. why? Even with a white kid going to a black neighborhood, you would want your white child to learn about their background, learn about the other race. These are the people that you're around. Mm -hmm. This is what they went through, but this is what your race went through. 
So that way they can know, mm-hmm. like, okay, now I understand why, you know, if I'm walking down the street with a friend of mine, while somebody might say something ignorant to them, but they may not say that to me. And then they can make that step to say, I'm going to defend my friend because I know what my friend has been through. You don't. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. people don't want to do that. They don't want the real raw mm-hmm. out there for their kids. They want to shield their kids and make their kids feel like that the world is some type of fairyland. It's not. Mm-mm. And it's such a disservice to children, too. My my son just graduated his senior year in high school. I was out at a protest with my girlfriend who's black and her two boys are going through the school. And the way that I know her is her two boys are friends with two of my girls. Like, you know, they're like middle school age kids. Mm. And I'm holding up a sign and I turned to her and I said, have your sons ever had a black teacher? And she goes, nope. And I went home and I asked my son, I said, have you ever had a black teacher? And he goes, no, Mm. never a black teacher. So my kids have been through four different schools, elementary, junior high, and high school, two different elementaries, not a black teacher, not one. And that is a disservice to my kids too, because if you've never gotten the experience to experience like the richness of a black teacher who can tell you some of these things that they know from learning it from their parents, it's just kind of a shame. Mm -hmm. It doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, it is. It is. It really is. And that's why I, when I tell people, like, they ask me, like, well, where do you think it should start? Start it in those schools. And, yes, it also starts in your home. Like, look mm-hmm. at it like the school system. School would be Head Start. Your home would be pre-K. After that, mm-hmm. it'll just keep going on and on. But you have to start somewhere. You have to create a foundation for your home or for your family to be open-minded to know that reality is we all live with different people everybody is different Mm -hmm. if the world was meant to be the same we all would look the same we all would act the same but it's not so you have to be acceptance to every other person that comes with different things comes with different ideas because you never know what you're going to learn from someone else you never know how they may affect you in life like you may down a black person that may do things in their young childhood that you may not think is right. But you never know what that black child may become when they get older. They may be the doctor that you need to save your life. But they may remember Mm -hmm. you taunting them as a kid and telling them that they were not going to be anything and here they are having your hands, I mean, having their hands on your life. And it's just like, what are you going to do? Are you going to be forgiving now? Or should you have already been forgiving and understanding Hmm. How do you feel like we could do a different job with regards to um, local politics? Especially like in our town, we have 1% black people, Mm -hmm. 1% black folks in our town. So what do you think somebody like me could do that would be different here? That would be helpful. Go to these neighborhood council meetings, educate your neighborhood, get them to understand that gentrification is not what we need. Gentrification is what holds us back. It's just a word that the government uses in order to scare people. They put certain things in different neighborhoods to apply to certain backgrounds so that way you can feel like you're in your comfort zone. But there are a lot of different races that like to be in other neighborhoods, but they feel like they can't fit because of this box of gentrification and people not knowing that just because I'm a certain color doesn't mean I can't be and live how you live doesn't mean I can't have a a nice lawn or a nice home or 
you know, I can't be educated on what's going on in the community because we all can. But mm-hmm. people that don't have a lot of black people in their neighborhood definitely need to go and educate their neighborhood. Get out, tell them, like, hey, it's a lot of black people that want to move to our neighborhood. They're good people. You know, they have good jobs. They know what they're doing with their lives. You all should be accepting to them. You all should help us vote them in because you don't know how they may make our neighborhood better, especially these little, like the judging seats. We need to go out and vote for those seats. Those are the people that have a great impact on our everyday life. Those are the people that can tell us, yes, we can go here. No, we can't go there. Yes, we can do this. No, we can't do this. But people oversee that. They don't really care about those. We learn about those type of seats in middle school. Middle school. So it's like we should really pay attention to stuff like that and we should really educate each other on stuff like that. Mm -hmm. I spent so much of my, um, the majority of my life, honestly, I spent so much of my time avoiding politics and you won't. I'm ashamed to say that the reason that I did was just because I was super comfortable and I had my job and my kids mm-hmm. and it wasn't affecting me and politics just seemed so dirty. And I just would, I mean, it would just be so hard for me to like get involved with anything like that because I've just, even back all the way back, like in my twenties, probably the first time I paid attention was in my twenties and the whole Clinton thing with the whole like, you know, White House, Monica Lewinsky thing, the whole thing was just like, gross. I don't even want to have, it turned me off so badly. And then the bushes and all of it, it just seems like, it seems like such a poor representation of our country. And exactly. I loved, I loved the Obamas and I don't, I didn't still didn't know really that much about politics. um, But I loved them because they were classy. Mm -hmm. They were faithful they seemed like they were trying to raise good kids and that was, I'm, that was it. That's what I loved about them. I don't know what their foreign policy was. I didn't know about any of it. Right. And, um, I still feel like that. I loved reading Michelle Obama's book. I just watched her documentary. I still just love, it doesn't, it didn't matter that they were black or white or Indian or Chinese or whatever. It mattered to me that they had class. It mattered to me that she was a bigger person that took up space and she didn't have to try to diet down to be like a total, you know, she had muscle. I love that, you know, and I didn't feel like she was just a pretty, pretty lady that was like in a bunch of different, you know, hats, you know, dresses with hats. that match. I felt like she was for the image of, and that's really what the presidents are like, not to like diminish who they are, but honestly, that's all it is. Presidents or, a face of America. All they do is mm-hmm. sign documents that come on their desk. They don't even really have the great decisions on making, like saying, okay, this law, we need this law right here, and I'm going to put it in effect right now. They can say those things, but they're not the ones who actually vote on those things to actually get them into play. They just sign it. That's it. They just agree to it. And they're literally just a face. But I feel like I. I feel I disagree a little bit in that I feel like having Trump in office because he, I still don't know that much about politics. I just know about people and I know about divisiveness. I know about mean behavior. I know about hate. And I feel like that's what he has stood for. Oh, yeah, and that's exactly. what he's done to this country. And so I feel like you, you know, 
if he's a quote unquote figurehead, if Obama was a figurehead and Trump was a figurehead, I I wish we could bring Obama back. Yes. Because he was he was he had class. He did. He carried he represented him, he our carried country. himself in a way where you knew who he was on a real level, but then you also knew that when it was time to handle business, he was able to handle business, but handle it in a way where everyone was in agreement. It wasn't like if there was something that he wanted to discuss that he would just discuss it amongst his little group. No, he would bring it out national. Like he would have big discussions Mm -hmm. about it. So a lot of people were able to relate to that because it's like, I feel like I'm a part of something. With Trump, it feels like he says something, it goes his way. You know what I'm saying? Like nobody has a decision in it or nobody can either say anything about it. And if you say anything, then you're a target. Or he walks out. Yeah, like, oh, he'll tell you, shut up. He'll 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 call you a name and walk out of the yeah. room and that's just to me it's like that's not who i want representing exactly. my country especially the foreign dignitaries and all that kind of stuff i don't want people seeing that and look how many enemies and I also, we've made because of trump look how many foreign enemies we've made yeah too many you know there was a video yeah i know yeah there's a video that went around uh, a couple of days ago i just got the chance to watch today i was watching it with my husband and it's his speech it's him speaking Mm -hmm. and then he's saying you know in the good old in the good old days they quote unquote they Mm -hmm. i'm assuming he means blacks i don't know uh, they wouldn't wouldn't act like that because they would leave on a stretcher and in the good old days we would have beat them down and it's it's taking his speech and then it's pumping in all these videos of like this black woman getting her ass kicked and then this other black guy getting an elbow to the jaw like just really vile stuff and I'm not saying that he was talking about those exact times, but it sure sounded exactly. like it. If you paint that picture, like what else do you expect the people and to who, look at? Who wants to talk about the old days? Exactly. Anyway? Who wants to talk about that? The old days at best for me are an embarrassment and the old days for you are painful. Exactly. So why are we bringing up the fucking old days? And you know why? It's because Trump lives off of drama. He loves drama. He loves to be the center of attention. And that's why I say he's the fucking elephant in the room. He loves to stir up things that that agitate people, that make people get the going. He loves to see people at their highest height. But this is the thing. He is the same president that ran and hid in a fucking bunker. You hid in a bunker while the world was at its knees. Mm-hmm. How can you call yourself yep. a true president or even a man at that? A man would not hide mm-hmm. in times of need. You hid out of fear, but yet you present yourself like you're some big bully. I honestly was glad he hid because I thought anything that would come out of his mouth would just make it worse. Oh, of course it would. Of course it would. But it's just the fact that it goes to show that you're just so fucking worth it. Like, the things he does, like, even with religion, he kicked out an entire church just to take a picture with a Bible. I know. I know. Come on, man. We could do a whole... I know. (laughs) I know. He's just gross. I just... I was so disappointed. He don't like women. He don't like other race. Who do you like? You like no I don't one. know. You're married to a foreign woman. I'm confused. Mm-hmm. 
but you hate women. Yeah, he's. <laughs> yeah, it's very confusing. Uh, it's very. It'll Conflict be very interesting interest. to see if he'll, if he'll be a president who ends up getting a divorce before he passes away. Because I bet you she'll divorce. Oh, him. I'm pretty sure she will. Trump has went bankrupt so many times. It's just a matter of time before he runs out of money because he wastes. It. He doesn't care. He feels like he's. He feels like he is untouchable in every measure. And that's not true. Yeah. If you look at videos of him coming to, he came to Missouri and gave a press conference. Someone yelled out um, the guy that I can't remember. He was a, a, I think he was an Islamic leader or something like that. Mm-hmm. But they yelled out his name while Trump was speaking. And Trump ran and his bodyguards jumped on stage. Like, what? You can't even come in communities and speak. You literally have to be behind the camera all day. Because of you creating this image of being a bully and not even helping your nation. All you do is throw threats, belittle people. And Twitter is the best example because that's the rawest way people express their emotions. So the fact that the things that he says on there and the things that certain people let him get away with, it's it's depressing. It's depressing. It is. It's heavy. It's heavy. And it's, I don't think I've ever seen anybody else be as divisive. I mean, you either love him. And I feel like, I mean, I stand stood at a few protests now and I look at the people who are carrying Trump flags and I'm just like, wow, they're just out there. You know, they don't even know why they're out there. What's that? They don't even know why they're out there. Like at the protest that I met you at, when I was looking across there, even when I was speaking, I said, if they could take time out their day, that's how you know they have nothing to do. You came out here to literally yell across the street at other people that aren't even paying any attention to you. Yeah. Yeah, yell for what? For a man that really doesn't care about you either? It doesn't make sense to me. And I'm, And that's why I can never support Trump and I honestly I'm like you I wasn't into politics like that I'm the type of person yeah yeah, I honestly I don't even vote and I'm gonna be honest but I push other people to vote because I know that it's the better thing to do I honestly would like to be self-governed which would be let our peers judge us let our peers choose what our consequences will be because these are people that you grew up with so they know you on a more personal level and if you do something not saying that if you kill someone, just get away. But if you do something, they will understand that, hey, you're not a bad person. But you're getting judged by people that don't know you. And they're going to slander your name and say, oh, you're a murderer. You're a psychopath. This, that, and the other. 20 years to life. Wow. Off of one mistake that I made. And that's another reason why we have these prison systems over flooded. With people that make one simple little mistake that you can honestly get help with. But Trump. He doesn't look into things like that. Obama did. Obama tried to help us by any means necessary. He got out in the community and talked to people. He did things with people. They created gardens for neighborhoods that needed food in their neighborhoods. Like, it's so many things that Trump could have actually did to make himself look better as an individual, but he chose to go down the route of being a bully and letting people see that white supremacy has always been in the forefront. Well, let me ask you this. If you could, you know, take a piece of clay and 
with your own hands mold someone that you thought would be a good leader for our country? You said you believe in being self-governing, which I don't know that that's going to ever happen here. Yeah, if you had to describe, (laughs) if you had to describe what it would be like to have a leader that you thought was better for us, what would that be like? Because I, I, I'll, I'll start. I would love to see a woman. I'd love to see a black woman. Because let's face it, women have been, you know, taking care of the homes Mm -hmm. and taking care of the family and setting the temperature of the home and encouraging the home and buying the gifts for the whole family and doing, doing the everything for generations. That's what my mom did. That's what I do. I'm not saying I have a great husband and he does help me a lot, but I'm just saying women are amazing. And I don't understand why we haven't had a feminine leader yet. To be honest, I believe me, I love men. I love men. You what? I'm in agreement with you. Like, I was honestly going to say the same thing. Like, I feel like a woman. Mm -hmm. And women, we have very tough skin. But with having that Mm -hmm. tough skin, when we're in confining situations, we know how to handle ourselves and not be like Trump, like a man, Mm -hmm. having outrage acting out of emotion we still think and plan out what it is and how we're going to respond so that it can still be beneficial to us and still be a sense of hey this is what I mean this is what I'm saying and you're going to understand it so yeah I definitely feel like a woman would be the best leader right now for this nation and I honestly I wish it was um Michelle (laughs) To be honest. You do? Yes, I wish it was Michelle Obama. I feel like she has a lot I wish to it was too. this country. I thought that too, but you know what I think about Michelle Michelle Obama? I think she also values her marriage and her children and her self-care and her rest. Yeah. And I think that those two terms took a lot out of her Yeah. and him. And I think they want to retire and I can't blame them because they gave a lot to this country. I didn't get the feeling at all that she would run, but I would love that. Do you, do you think that she might? She might. I mean, she, she really? can surprise us. You never know. You know what I'm saying? Like, oh, and I that will prove that. how strong women are. Like she went through that. She was beat down. She took a break and look, now she's back better than ever. That would be great. Oh, I would love that. <laughs> That would be amazing because she's so smart and she's, you know, she, I love her whole, um, like her whole upbringing. I love how her dad was blue collar Mm -hmm. and how hard he worked and how he was disabled. Not that you have to have like this great story, but it just, I just felt like she was so relatable because there's so many aspects of what she, she had to work her ass off to get where she was, you know? She definitely did. And that's what she yeah. that's what she proved when she wrote that book and when she made that documentary that I wasn't just some um spoon fed child. You know, like I had to work. I had to get out here and do what I had to do in order to make my life better for me and for my family and for myself. Because it's like if you don't get out here and do what you need to do, you'll never be nothing. And look, she married a great man who became a great president. And she became the greatest first lady that we've known. And look, we're yes. all begging. All races are begging for them to come back. Please come back. Yeah. Yeah. 
and my neighbors down the street we were having beers at their house and they were like oh I wish we could just get the Obamas back mm. I mean it's just it's hard to watch our it's hard to be so it's hard to be a white person and be represented by that man because I feel like a lot of people think that that represents everyone us and it just yeah it doesn't it doesn't it's not how I feel it's not how the majority of the people I know feel you know it's not it's not good and that's the stereotypical All view. Right. yeah okay let me ask you a question have you ever met a good police officer I have and I can be honest about that yeah. I have I have mm-hmm. um in Ferguson, we actually because I know you've met some that you. I know you've met some that didn't do you right. Of course, a, a great sum of them, <laughs> great amount of them, but I have met a lot of good ones. Um, yeah. In Ferguson, we actually had officers that were of color, but they were. It was like they were on a different level. Like their department respected the fact that even though we were going through all of that, that they still stood for their people. They still got out, talked to us. They still tried to help us, give us intel on things. They still tried to do what they could, even though they wore a badge that means a slave catcher. Because that's exactly what being an Mm -hmm. officer means. It used to be a slave catcher. So it's like they tried to still show like, hey, this is just my job but this is not my life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So there are good officers out here, and that's what some people have to realize. There actually was an officer, there was a video going around, and he was at a protest, and he asked his commanding officer, could he kneel? Before the cameras came out and all of that, the officer said no. So he asked to speak to his sergeant. The sergeant asked him, why do you want to um, kneel, take a knee? And he was like, I respect of my people, and I respect of I know how they feel and he he proceeded to tell him no so as Mm. soon as the media came out and as soon as the protesters started chanting he walked over to the other side with the protesters he got a sign held it up took off his badge and said i no longer work for this police department Mm. right in front of the same people that told him no and then he told Wow, that's brave. Yeah, he told everyone like this is what I I love being a police officer. I that's you know that was my dream, that was my career, that's what I wanted to do. And he's having a newborn child as well, and it's like, but he still understood right from wrong, and that's what people have to do. You have to understand right from wrong. These police officers, a lot of them, this is how they, this is their life, this is how they have to survive. But they know right from wrong, so if they take that stand and stand up with you, acknowledge that. Because it takes a lot from them to do that because they get threats from their same people that they're supposed to be protected by, which is their fellow officers. There's a lot that go mm-hmm. on in police departments. That's why police feel scared when they do take big stands like that. They feel threats from like, okay, they're going to do something to my family because they know what their comrades are capable of. They see it every day. Mm-hmm cover up mm-hmm. constantly they know that they could easily be the same person going through what they just seen someone else go through do you think that it's going to make a big difference that so much shit keeps hitting the fan like this i think it was like two or three cops that um 
they were having that conversation, like a really nasty racist conversation and it just came out and they were fired. Do you remember? Did you see that? I didn't. I didn't. It was like three cops and it was a recorded conversation, but it was an accident that it was recorded and someone else got wind of it and then it got outed, but it was, it was nasty. Mm. It was the N word and they were going to kill those ends Mm. and they can't wait to do it. And it was like a conversation. I'll send it to you, but it was just between these three guys. I'm assuming white guys. I don't know. Mm. Maybe they, you know, they could have been another race. I don't know, but they can't wait to do it. And it was just so filled with hate and disgusting and it came out, it was on the news, and they were immediately fired. And that's, you know what, to me, I always feel like there's going to be some creepy outlier that you didn't know what a creep they were, you didn't know how gross they were. But as long, you know, you're going to always have someone like the guy that that kneeled on, on uh, George Floyd's neck. Mm-hmm. There's always going to be someone like that, because there's just too many humans doing the job. But what needs to be done is immediately firing these people and prosecuting. Yes. And when we when we wait, it's just like the whole marriage therapy thing I was talking about. When you wait, you're, when you wait to, to pick someone up and arrest him, you're just basically acknowledging that it didn't happen, that you don't think it happened or it didn't matter or wasn't that big of a deal, or you were imagining it. And it's just such a way to oppress people and make people feel like they don't, you know, that their trauma doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. So I like the idea to me, it's like, okay, if that's going to happen, we're going to scoop them up. We're going to fire them. We're going to prosecute them. We're going to take away their insurance. We're going to take away their 401k. We're going to leave them destitute and see if that's happening in the media, if it helps alongside training and, um, reform, you know, reforming how we spend our money with the police departments and, and big changes like that. I wonder how many steps that would help us get forward if we had a more strict way of enforcing that we don't think it's okay. Right, right. No, you're completely right because I feel like they need to be prosecuted as fast as a black man. If a black man commits a crime, they're instantly yeah. prosecuted within 24 to 48 hours in their minds already. Once they go to court, they're just repeating what they already thought of. So it's like if an officer kills an innocent person, you need to go ahead and make in your mind that, yeah, they were wrong. Boom, here's the evidence. Okay, fire them, like you said, do everything to put that pressure on them because that will stop people from doing senseless stuff. It will, senseless murder. Yes, ma'am. It will make people think twice. Yeah, definitely. It, and it sends a message that, that people aren't, you're not going to get away with that crap. Mm-hmm. And I think another thing that I don't understand is I don't understand why we don't have body cams on constantly. I don't, I don't exactly. know. I can't speak to it intelligently because or why I don't do, know what the rules are. Why are they able to turn them off? Because they're able yes, to turn them I off, think turn the, them unless, on. It should be be able to be if you're once you put it on and you're on shift, that body cam should stay on. It should automatically turn yeah. off once you come out of your uniform and you put it back on its base. Yep. Be- and I mean, there should be like you should be able to urinate. Of course. But you know, in privacy, you know, there should be you should be able to urinate. I think, but if you're doing that job for their protection and for uh, the public's protection, exactly. The public should be able to see what is going on because it's, it turns into a, all, always a, he said, she said, mm-hmm. and it shouldn't, it shouldn't. And when it those body cam footage comes out, it's always like, oh, well, we didn't know. No, no, no. You knew because when cops are yeah. on the scene, they come up with their plan right then and there, their alibi <sighs> right then and there. They have to, 
because they know how fast it goes. So, it's- but see, here's the bummer. I know, I know, I have a really good friend who's a police officer for LA County Sheriff's Department, and her heart is broken right now. She's she has listened to a few of these podcasts. She's very upset with me with these podcasts, and I understand it's her. It's hard for her to listen to this because people like her who have busted, like she came on the scene as a young um, person in law enforcement right after the Rodney King thing in 92. And now she's probably just a few years away from retiring. So her whole career, she's been working her ass off. She's been, you know, in Compton, taking off her police belt, jumping on bounce houses, going to read at community centers to children, really trying to like be that cop that reaches out to the community and makes everything better. But what ends up happening is a small percentage of police officers who behave badly make it horrible for her. And so there are, I'm sure there are cops that come up with a plan, but I really feel like I know her, I know her heart. And I, I know that that's not her making a plan, but I think she should be able to go to work and not have to deal with any of these buttholes and that culture. Of course. You know, I don't think that's that's not fair. We should also acknowledge those officers that do do those things because, like I said, they go through their own, they go through their own problems. Like we don't know what they have to go through in order to be an officer because you have to go through a lot of ridicule. You have to go through a lot of being under the microscope as an officer. So those ones that are mm-hmm. doing things like that, going into the community, getting to know the community, actually helping the community, yes, they should feel safe. They should feel like what they're doing is right because it is and that's what I'm also mm-hmm. trying to raise awareness with like yeah I don't mess with a lot of cops but I mess with a nice amount that I know are doing the right thing and that this is the way they have to make money to support themselves but they know right from wrong so I support them mm-hmm. yeah yeah and I'm I I, I feel like we need I, I want to find a way to encourage good cops to stay and discourage bad cops from staying and i don't know exactly how to do that but i think we have to infiltrate one thing that would really with more help good is swift justice infiltrated with, say again? infiltrated with more good cops those cops that can yes basically play that mind game on them to help them either change into being a better person or either make it to the point where they want to leave like they feel mm-hmm. so much guilt and so much shame that at this mm-hmm. point you know what I'm going to leave. I don't want to be a cop anymore. I can't take it anymore. Like, because a lot of officers that do these hateful crimes, they are fed up with a lot of things that they have going on personally, and they don't know how to separate personal life from work life. So those are the people that we do not need. Plus, they hire officers that have PTSD, come straight in from the military. Why would you do that? These are people that need Mm -hmm. help. They need counseling. You don't need to put them back in that same situation. Thanks for listening, guys. I don't have any idea where this podcast will take me or even if it will ever do any good. Um, My whole goal is to learn, and I'm hoping that in another 10 years, I'll be able to look back and see how much I've grown, how much more I know. And it's through conversations like this with people like Bree Webb where, you know, even though I should have known more about the circumstances around her cousin, and his death, um, I think through 
having these conversations with people I probably never would have talked to before. I don't know how I would have ever come across this woman, you know, but now that George Floyd has died and for whatever reason that combined with COVID uh, pandemic and us being all locked in our houses and not being able to see each other um, has really just there's a, I think there's a lot of people out there like me, middle class white people that are like, what in the fuck is going on in our country? And why does this keep happening? And how can I be a part of making my country better? Making my country fair and equitable for all of us, not just some of us. So anyway, thank you for getting, if you made it through the whole conversation, thank you for listening. And I'll see you next time. Talk to you next time on The Diana Show.